right, welcome to day 357 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ezra chapter 10, Psalm 146, and Revelation 14, verse 14, through the end of chapter 15. Okay, so we saw in Ezra yesterday how a number of the officials uh, from Yehud had approached the newly arrived priest, scribe, leader of the religious leader of the community, perhaps we might say, person very informed on the law of Moses, etc., with with the king's authority to carry to to carry out the mandates of that law. Uh, we saw how he was approached by a bunch of officials and that um, they confessed to him that a number of the people uh, in their community, in the Jewish community, had been intermarrying with the people of the land. And I talked about what a big deal that was, and we saw Ezra's uh, initial reaction as well as his prayer to the Lord about this. And uh, after we're given the content of that prayer, that's where we pick up today. And so it says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. So, you know, he means business. This is a very full-bodied prayer. It's, it's getting physical. And a very great assembly of people, men, women, and children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Okay, there is a significant element within Yehud. In fact, the vast majority who are not engaging in this process, at least not yet. And so there's a desire here to uh, root out this practice, to nip it in the bud uh, so that it doesn't become a huge problem. I mean, it already is a problem, but obviously uh, the fewer people engaged in it, the better. And we'll actually get kind of specific numbers in today's passage. And um, and so they gather, they're weeping bitterly, and a guy named Shekaniah, the son of Yehiel, um, of the sons of Elam comes to Ezra and confesses, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, meaning Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law." And uh, and then he encourages Ezra, arise, this is your task, we are with you, be strong and do it. Now, this guy, Shekaniah, is uh, probably not the same as the Shekaniah uh, mentioned in chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, but if you look forward to chapter 10, verse uh, verse 26, um, you see that the, the sons of Elam, including Yechiel, are among those who are guilty of this. So it may be that he sees that his father has done this, or, or other, or some of his brothers, or it might be that that Shikanya himself has done this and is realizing that this is not a good thing. So either he himself is guilty, or at the very least his family is guilty, and here he is encouraging Ezra, seeing what, what this is, and wanting to do what it takes to course correct and so, you know, pretty good example of of um, of repentance. He tells him, arise, for it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. So, um, and that is, in fact, what is going to happen. Uh, Ezra arises and he makes the leading priests, Levites, and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they're, they're so- solemn, solemnly swearing 
that they are going to take care of this. And as you can see, the suggestion here, which is actually in the mouth of Shekanya, not Ezra, so significant that he realizes what repentance would entail, he, he says to put away all these wives and children. And this obviously raises a couple issues here. So there is, of course, the issue of abandoning wives and children, right? Like there seems to be some injustice in that, right? Uh, also, we have explicit biblical issues such as like what we just saw in Malachi 2.16 where God hates divorce, and that that's one of the issues that Malachi had to address uh, years earlier, that divorce had become uh, common, and this appears to be what is being proposed here. Um, there's even kind of maybe a wider biblical issue in that um, it does not appear, based on Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, that a believer can initiate divorce with an unbeliever, right? If the unbeliever le leaves, then that's another thing. But the believer is not the one who should initiate a divorce um, if they are in an unequally yoked marriage. So to these issues, I would have the following thoughts. Number one, and these are not in any particular order aside from the order in which they popped into my head. Um, so sin ruins everything. And this is, this is applicable across the spectrum, right? And sometimes when we choose to engage in sin, um, and then we're moved to the point where repentance is on the table and we're, and we're willing to walk towards that, we're left with no great options. Um, and it sometimes is very difficult to know what ought to be done, right? Because sin, it's not like you it's not like there's ever any guarantee that in turning from your sin that things are going to be great or that like you're not going to be dealing with the mess that sin created. But there needs to be an acknowledgement that this mess is not because of the commandments of God. The mess is because we've chosen either to ignore them or deliberately disobey them. Uh, so the fault is on us. I think, for example, of a situation we had in our church where, you know, we tried to be um, a place where sinners can come to find Christ. And so, you know, you get a lot of, um, a lot of, um, interesting stories and interesting things that people have to work through in their discipleship. And I remember a little while back, we had a lesbian couple coming to our church, and, you know, we want to be able to um, instruct them in the way of Christ and and lead them forward in their faith. But, um, you know, that relationship is not something that can continue if they are going to be... Um, you know, walking according to God's word and God's revealed will for their sexuality. And of course, there are a lot of other things that can be said there, but the reason I bring this up is because a complicating factor was that they actually had a kid between them. And so, you know, what exactly is one to do in this situation? You know, are you to say, you know, you guys got to, you guys got to get divorced? They were married, um, at least married in the eyes of the state. And there was a child who called both of them mom. And uh, so, you know, what What do you do and how do you love this family through them and help them walk with Jesus? And so that's a, like a very vivid example of something I think is kind of similar where, and, I, and I'm not saying that 
you know, I know the perfect answer to that scenario. But here is a situation in which people's decisions um, either made apart from the Lord or in rebellion against him now have put them in a place where there's no great options available. And I think that's important to keep in mind. That's just something I've seen through pastoral experience, and it's in many situations other than that. You might think of like a married uh, or an unmarried couple living together. Um, you know, you sometimes sometimes there's there's not especially if it's been for a while you know that can be it can cause a lot of difficulty trying to uh trying to walk that back and we need to keep in mind when we're flirting with sin that those that 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 can create uh those kinds of situations and in terms of like answering this question for this text it may be the case that the solution that that we're to understand that the solution itself is um a problem caused by sin, that it's a terrible situation for everybody, and um, and that that might be one of the things we're being asked to absorb as readers of this text. Um, the other thing I want, to, I think we need to keep in mind is, and, I, and this is relevant with a bunch of biblical questions, um, the Bible is not half true, okay? So, in other words, one has to understand the entire narrative uh, that we are that the Bible is presenting to us, and whatever we're going to say about it, we have to keep that in mind, right? So, in other words, the 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 full picture here is that this is something that has led the people of Israel into idolatry, and that is uh, evil in the eyes of God uh, for His people Israel to intermarry with indigenous Canaanites, um, and. Uh, and and that this this bring has brought severe compromise, and that because of that the nation has faced the judgment of God, right? Like it's not like that stuff is not true, and so that's the thing that this is being balanced against. It's balancing against the prospect of destroying this entire thing that God is doing. And by the way, there's also parts of the biblical storyline that encourage us to to think in that direction, that God is restoring his people. He's giving them the chance to experience this um, this, this kingdom that has been promised in the prophets, and which is far greater than any, you know, anything else that anyone else, that anyone's got going on. So that needs to be kept in mind as well. Also, let's remember that the Bible does present divorce as a... Um, permissible scenario in certain situations. And in the Old Testament, the key text for that would be Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. There is, of course, more to be said about that, especially in light of what Jesus says uh, in Matthew 19 regarding it. And we don't really have time to go down that. I will probably talk more about divorce in a, an episode of Journey Through Scripture read. So it's not as if, you know, um, it's not as if divorce is an entirely ungodly uh, thing uh, it it can happen under certain circumstances um, and be valid in the eyes of God. Also, it is important to keep in mind that this is one of those places in the Bible where we're not given all the details. I mean, that's the case frequently in the Bible, but um, you know, it doesn't say what what actions were taken after these divorces were put in place or after these. After Ezra's solution, uh, you'll see why I'm. Uh, I, I'm. We might want to be a little hesitate hesitant before calling them straight up divorces. 
um, in a minute. But um, let's say that they are, you know, well, I think it's fair to say that uh, based on the text that the, these families are are uh, are broken up, right? The, they are sent out, the, the wife and the and the children. Um, well, there are also laws within Israel, just as this is they are doing this in obedience to the law of Israel. Well, also part of the law of Israel is to be merciful and kind and to provide for the widow and the sojourner, right? That's part of the law too. And so I think it's pretty safe to assume that there is a law of God obligation uh, that these people have, that these Israelites have, to care for those whom are now in a very compromising situation. Um, also piggybacking on the the Deuteronomy 24 thing, they, they, they would have been given a certificate of divorce and able to remarry. Remarriage is a thing in the ancient Near East. Also, some have pointed out that the uh, the phraseology is not is not the typical way of referring to actual divorces. So there may be some other kind of situation that is in view here. The word that is used is hotzia, which uh, comes from the verb yatsa to go out. So this is to cause them to go out. This is obviously a splitting up. But the normal terms that are used for divorce, like keritut or shalach are not used here. Um, so again, let's not assume more than the text says. Um, and then um, finally, um, we note that one, when we tally up the numbers that we are about to be given towards the end of chapter 10, uh, it is 113 families that are engaged in this, and that is out of about 29,000. So it's as I said, it's a it's a problem, but it's not like it's widespread throughout the entire community. It's more than there should be, but you know they are very much nipping this in the bud. And if that's the case, that kind of also suggests that maybe this has not been going on for that long. And uh, when it says that the children are to go out, that may be in reference to young children who particularly need their mothers at a young. Uh, time in life for obvious reasons uh, that it makes more sense for them to be with their moms than with their dads. So all those things are in the mix, and I'm not saying that that totally makes this uh, completely understandable um, and not like we're the ones who who are the judge of whether or not something is moral or not, but all of those things, I think, need to play into a realistic moral evaluation of this scenario. And when I say a moral evaluation, I mean in light of other things that we are told in Scripture, right? Like it's not – I'm not just saying in light of our modern sensibilities what, what is right in our own eyes. No, what is right in the eyes of, of God as well as he has revealed in his word. So all that uh, to say, um, let's keep going. <laughs> um, and so – um, Ezra then goes to the house of uh, a Levite who is a, a, a head of a house, Yeho, Yehohanan, who is um, mentioned as a head of a household in Nehemiah 12, 23 through 24, uh, 12, 22 through 23. And he spends the night there fasting, um, you know, still mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And, um, and then a proclamation is made that people need to come out within three days uh, to figure out how they're going to do this. And remember, this is that, uh, you know, these three-day waiting periods seems to be a thing here in the book of Ezra. We saw this when they were at Ahava 
in 815, and then when they first arrived in Jerusalem in 832. And so, um, and so. Everybody who is, uh, you know, has a say needs to come out. The officials, the elders, um, and anybody who doesn't, their property is to be forfeited, and he himself is banned from the congregation. So this needs to be an act of the entire community. This cannot just be Ezra saying, hey, you guys need to do this, and everybody being like, oh, I guess we just have to do what Ezra says. No, everybody needs to be on board here, and the obedience needs to be the obedience of the community. In fact, if you look down to verse 15, it notes by name those who uh, disagree and who object and who are not on board with what is decided. And so at the end of three days, they do all gather, they assemble at Jerusalem, and it's a pretty dramatic scene, right? They're standing in the open square before the temple, trembling because of the matter and because there's heavy rain, and it's just like kind of increases this drama of the situation. And Ezra stands up and announces, you have broken faith and married foreign women. Notice he's addressing the entire congregation. This is viewed as a as a corporate issue, an idea that this, the idea that this is tolerated among all the peoples. Um, and the people are uh, very readily acknowledge this, but also that, you know, this is going to, in order to actually enact this, it's going uh, to take some more time, and this is not the place for this. So let's go ahead and appoint the elders um, uh, the and the judges of every city, and they can come, the, the officials that is standing for the whole of the assembly, and decide what is to be done. And so they did this. Uh, Ezra selects the heads of the father's houses, and on the first day of the 10th month, which is 10 days later than that rainy scene that we just read about, uh, they sit down to examine the, the, the matter. And within three months, by the first day of the first month, they'd come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And then you have um, the households where this has been a problem listed. And first, it is those among the priests. And of course, this is particularly problematic in that the priests are the ones who are supposed to be, you know, if anybody is supposed to be practicing holiness and having a high regard for the commands of God and being especially cautious about the type of behavior that led the people into apostasy and idolatry in the first place, it should be them. But indeed, some of them were involved. And, you know, this is just, this is, it's not hard to see that if if something was not done, what would have become of the community? And so some of uh, some of the priests who are found there they are named and you, and notice that they pledge also to put away their wives and there is that kind of ambiguous verb once again uh, from Yatza uh, to 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 cause to go out. So they pledge to do that, and they offer a guilt offering. And the guilt offering, I don't know if you recall this, but back in uh, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15, guilt offerings are especially appropriate or especially used when something holy is made unholy. And the priests themselves are holy people, right? And so by doing this, the implication here is acknowledging that they have now made themselves unholy. Like um, this is the same kind of sacrifice that's used, for example, when a a holy, though not as holy as a priest, but holy by virtue of belonging to Israel, 
member of the community contracts a skin disease, which is often called leprosy in the Bible, but I've, as I noted, is, is broader than that as well. Um, but th- these are the kinds of sacrifices that are used when their purification is complete, because you need to just up the level of holiness, we might say. And then, um, you know, the Levites as well are implicated, some of them, so, uh, one of the singers, and then uh, several of the gatekeepers as well, and then you get um, the names from the rest of Israel. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children. Again, I noted that uh, this may be a fairly recent practice, and so some of these children that are being sent away would have been relatively young. Well, this, which is actually right, the final statement of the book of Ezra, and I've noted that Ezra-Nehemiah is is like one book, but this definitely uh, confirms that, that uh, it really sounds like, you know, some of, they just haven't been married long enough for there to be a lot of children. So it's kind of a recent thing, and they do address the problem in a timely manner. Okay, let's go over now to Psalm 146, which is a pretty straightforward psalm. It is a psalm of praising Yahweh. Uh, praise, which is, as I've said many times, the fitting response for God's goodness in your life. How do you, it's kind of like what, uh, Christmas is right around the corner at the time of my recording this, and at the time of your listening it, to it too. Um, but, you know, you get the question, right? What do you give a man who has everything? Um, and so <laughs> how much more the case with God, right? What are we going to give him back? Well, we give him praise. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Praise is a lifelong project. We are in it for the long run. It's not so much about the sprint as it is about the marathon. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Okay, so... Here now is kind of the meat of the psalm beginning, and the question is, whom are you going to trust? So you're praising God, um, and that's what you're supposed to do, right? But why? Because God comes actually comes through for you, whereas human beings, um, you know, you might be able to trust them for a season, but at best, this is what you're going to get. You're not going to find true salvation through them, and uh, eventually all people go away, and on that day, his plans perish, right? And at best, someone might honor a person's plans, what they wanted to do. And so simply by nature of um, our our mortality, human beings are not worthy of our trust, as well as many, many other things, at least not comparably to God, right? That's not to say you can't trust anyone for anything, but um, but compared to God, like they're not the ones who are actually able to cause your life to flourish and cause your life to have true blessing in it. God is the only one who is able to do that. And it's, you know, often said that it's unfair to put that kind of expectation on other people. And so by following the advice of Psalm 146, we actually are able to have healthy relationships with other people because God is the one whom we praise and God is the one we trust um, whereas other people, we understand what they are, what can be asked of them, what is reasonable to expect of them as creatures, as fallen human beings. We can love them, um, and you know we can maybe trust them for some things, but they can never take the place of God. 
And so you do have the, the, the flip side now given in verses 5 through 7. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God, who, the one who made heaven and earth, right, as opposed to the one who, who will eventually be gone and maybe very soon will be gone. He made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Keeping faith here, that word emet is the word for faithfulness, keeping faithfulness forever. I'm not sure why they don't translate it that way. Um, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, right? God is the one who can actually do this and who can actually consistently do this and come through when his people need him, when his, when his children cry to him. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over sojourners, the widow and the fatherless upholds, and brings the wicked to ruin. Is there anyone else of whom you can say that, that in their hand is where final justice lies? Yahweh will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations, even so if you can't trust human beings it throughout your life because they might go away. Here, God is not only trustworthy through your life, but he's trustworthy should there be a thousand generations after you. Praise Yahweh. Okay, let's go now to Revelation 14, 14 through the end of chapter 15. Remember that yesterday I said that we were looking at the destiny of those who follow the lamb and those who follow the beasts. And... um that's what this is going to continue today. Uh, so we had three angels yesterday, and we're going to have uh, another uh, two more today. But first, it says, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. Okay, by now, you should know exactly who this is. Okay, this is the, the image of Jesus taken from Daniel chapter 7, son of man riding on the cloud, on a cloud, what is an interesting thing that is added here is the fact that he is wearing a golden crown on his head, because what is Daniel 7 all about? Daniel 7 is all about the Son of Man riding on the cloud to come to the Ancient of Days to receive his eternal dominion, and here the fact that he is wearing the, the crown means that he has received that dominion, he has that dominion, he is reigning, and he has a sharp sickle in his hand, okay, so here we're going to have, obviously, an agricultural metaphor. And another angel comes out of the temple. And this is, um, I think it probably goes without saying, this is the temple in heaven. This is not another place where we might look to some kind of rebuilt earthly temple. Look all the way back to chapter 11, verse 19, where he looks up in heaven and he sees the temple open, uh, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, this is Jesus, and the earth was reaped. So here we have the collection of the redeemed. Jesus has come to collect his own. Okay, that's what you that's what the reaper comes. Jesus here pictured as a reaper comes to collect. And then, as I saw, we're going to have two more angels. So we get another one coming out of the temple in heaven, also with a sharp sickle. So he's going to come, but he's going to come to reap something else. And then the second angel here comes out from the altar. So even more specific, not just the temple in general, but the altar. 
and he has authority over the fire, uh, it is said, and he called with a loud voice to the one who has had the sharp sickle, so to the other angel, um, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for his gra- for its grapes are ripe. And so here, whereas Jesus collects his own, here these are collecting those who follow the the beast, who follow the dragon. And um, and notice that the one who makes this call is the one who is said to have authority over the fire. Fire, of course, being a metaphor for God's judgment. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, it says, and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Note the, uh, of course, very vivid imagery here of the wine press, not least of all being that we are likely to think of the red juice coming from the the wine. And it says it was trodden outside of the city. So the city of uh, where God's people dwell, where he dwells, is not the place of of judgment, right? This is the place of blessing. So they're taken outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press, it says, as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is uh, patterned after Joel 3, 13 through 15, where we read, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe, go in, tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow for their evil is great, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their signing, their shining. Okay, and now chapter 15 is going to introduce us. Remember, we've had the seven seals. We've had the seven trumpets. This is the intro to the seven bowls. So he says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So this is going to be the last demonstration of the wrath of God. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, which obviously calls back to the initial um, uh, appearance of God in chapter 4, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, and remember by what it is that they have conquered, by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. And they're standing beside that sea with harps of God in their hands. And just like in the other uh, songs in heaven, they are singing a song. Here it is called the song of Moses, uh, the servant of God, and the song of the land saying. Now, the song of Moses is actually a thing in the Old Testament. You can read it back in uh, Exodus chapter 15, right after the people crossed through the Sea of Reeds. This is, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And the reason I think this song is here, given the same name as that song, I I don't think it's like we're actually reciting Exodus 15. Um, But the reason it's given that, of course, is think about what um, the Sea of Reeds is, uh, is, is, is a pattern of. It's God's defeat of his enemies, right? God's miraculous deliverance of his people and defeat of his, of his enemies. And notice its wording, uh, the, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying. So are they singing two songs or are they singing one? Um, and you might be like, well, it says two songs here, right? But some suggest that the and here is what is called the apexegetic 
use of the Greek conjunction, which is the word chi, which normally means and, but can also mean like even or that is. So it would be the, they, they sing the song of Moses, that is the song of the lamb. Or, you know, to clarify, I mean the song of the lamb, namely the song of the lamb. Um, and it very well may be the new song that we're not given the content to back in chapter 14, 3. Uh, that's a possibility. But either way, here is the content. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Notice this is what they are saying in the aftermath of God's judgment. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We see there that that very... Um, kind of Old Testament prophetic hope, right, with all the nations coming to worship the Lord. Uh, this is seen as something that is now being fulfilled in the last days. And finally, uh, he looks and he says, the sanctuary of the tent of witness is in heaven, and it's opened, and out of the sanctuary come seven more angels, this time with seven plagues, clothed in the uh, the clothing of heaven, of course, pure, bright linen, and golden sashes around their chests, uh, resembling the the Son of God, of course, in his initial appearance in chapter 1. Uh, this expression, the tent of witness, is actually only used one other time in Scripture uh, to denote the tabernacle, Israel's tabernacle, and that reference would be in Acts 7.44, which is uh, part of the speech of Stephen before he is stoned to death, before he becomes the church's first martyr, which leads nicely into my second point about this, is um, that this is actually um, an interesting place where you kind of see the merging of this concept of testifying and uh, being killed for your faith, becoming a quote-unquote martyr. So notice that Stephen, of course, is the one who calls it this, and he is you know, very well known as the first martyr of the church. And um, and so he calls it this, and the the word martyrion, which means witness here, also means martyr. And uh, so there he means, so there it's kind of like a double meaning that we're seeing here. Uh, in terms of like Old Testament passages where this might come from, um, one might think of Exodus 25, 16, where um, it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark of the Covenant is what? The testimony that I shall give you, it says. That's Acts 25, 16. So in, in that sense, it is that in, the, in that it houses the testimony, but bearing that testimony and testifying about that testimony uh, by the time you are at this point in the New Testament um, often means that one has paid quite a price for being able to do that. Uh, indeed, the very author of this book, John, right? He's on the island called Patmos on account of the, the testimony about Jesus. So these angels now come out of the tent of witness. Um, we might think a little Hebrews-ish here, right? We've heard it called the, uh, the temple, um, but, uh, but now also it's acceptable also to call it the, the tent of witness. There is uh, a merging of these terms, as I said, in the book of Hebrews, um, right there's there is a uh, an earthly tent and a heavenly tent 
um, and they're the same meaning. It's basically the sanctuary, a temple. So whether or not we're calling it a tent or a temple to describe heaven itself, the, the dwelling place of God, the place where God is. And to these angels is given by the, the by one of the four living creatures seven gold, uh, uh, golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And at this point, it says the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This, of course, is reminiscent of the first, the consecration of the tabernacle, um, right after Moses finishes constructing it in Exodus chapter 40, in verses 34 through 35, the book of Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord in the form of smoke filling the temple, and he is not able to uh, to, to continue in it, uh, to stay in it. The same thing then happens with um, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, where uh, where where Solomon's temple is built, and God takes up residence in the temple, and the glory fills it, and that takes the form of smoke, and they're unable to continue doing their their temple stuff in it. And then finally, um, which is probably the the text that we're primarily to be thinking of here in Ezekiel forty three when we have his vision of the new temple, um, the chapter begins by saying, uh, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Because remember, in Ezekiel, back in chapter 10, the glory had departed. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, one of my favorite images from the Bible. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Kebar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. So God coming back into his temple... And this passage now, speaking of that as, in some sense at least, being fulfilled in this vision. Okay, thanks as always for being with me, and as always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye. 